You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 begins this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then flip over to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to look at the whole of that story. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house uh, is my heir. There, then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him, as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer and a three year old female goat and a three year old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I have given this land. 
from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kedomite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gerashite and the Jebusite. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you have a task that you have to do that you absolutely loathe doing? Anybody? Somebody give me an example. Let's say, what's a task that you have to do, but you loathe doing it? The dishes. It's part of adulting, right? When we were kids, there was that movie, The Never-Ending Story. And when you became adults, the never-ending story was laundry and dishes, right? Uh, if I were to say, hey, uh, you know, your dishes need to be done, for every load of dishes you do, I will give you a penny. How many of you would be motivated to go do your dishes? Nobody? Man. All right, what if I up the ante? What if I say a dollar? I'll give you a dollar if you will wash all of your, every dirty dish that is in your house, all of them washed, I'll give you a buck. No, not yet. For a piece? No, 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 just the whole, the whole thing, whole thing, whole thing for a dollar. How long has it been since they were done? I don't know. It's, it's up to you. It depends on how much you loathe it, right? All right, let's up the ante. How about, how about, uh, how about a hundred bucks? Would you be, would you feel a little bit more inclined to, yeah, okay, I'll hop up and do it. All right, what if I said a hundred grand? Anybody? No hesitation. Anybody going to hop up and and do the do the dishes? All right. Okay. Right. There is something now. A hundred grand and a penny, obviously vastly different in value, but there is worth in each of them, right? And the dynamic of the worth of what it is that we are receiving from that creates a motivation in us to do something that we maybe are not so naturally inclined to want to do, right? What if we said this? What if I said, hey, if you'll wash all of your dishes, it will bring exceeding joy to the person that you love the most. Would you immediately drop everything you were doing and get up and go do what it is that was there? I hope so, right? If not, i got a different sermon for you, right? But there's a motivation of reward as it relates to, say, obedience or doing something that is not naturally, you know, we're not naturally inclined to do. Obedience uh, is uh, doing something that we are not naturally wanting to do. Habit is what we are naturally inclined to do, but obedience is taking on an action of something that we maybe not necessarily otherwise would not want to do. And we all know this from an early age. Mom and said, do this. And we had to be like, oh, man, do I really want to do it? We'd, we'd drag our feet or those kind of things. That was not the case if mom and dad said, eat the ice cream. Right? There was no, there was no like call of obedience. I must obey mother and father and consume the frozen dairy product. Right? There was no, there was no wrestling match that was in that. Well, this call of obedience, as it relates, versus call of habit, is the distinction as we move through the story of redemption that we find ourselves in today. Last week, we took a look at Adam, and we came to the conclusion from Scripture that in Adam, all sinned. 
All of us were born into a state where our heart was bent, where we were confined in our will such that we have modified free will, right? We can wake up and choose how we dress and what we're going to eat and uh, maybe what you know, news outlet we're going to check on our phone. We can do all of those kind of things, but there are some things that we cannot choose to do. In other words, we cannot choose not to sin. Our will has been modified because in Adam all of us sinned. It ground into us. And that changed the way in which we lived in this world that living before that was just normal. There was not necessarily an act of obedience that needed to happen. It was just a rhythm of life tending to the creation, the good gift that God had given to mankind. And our will to obey Him was shifted and the, the fight to obey happened. Of course, there's a lot that happens from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 16. But it is uh, distinct and important to us because this is one of the first moments that we see God saying something that is similar to Adam. In that in Adam all sinned. That one man's action produced consequences to all the rest of humanity. And here we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God's call to one man has impact to all peoples. Abraham, uh, at his beginning known as Abram, lived in the land of Ur. He was a pagan. He worshipped false gods. He bowed his heart down to graven images and idols. We know that from what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that. In fact, uh, the New Testament writers refer to this specifically. We also know this from archaeology, as archaeologists have dug throughout that region, that idol worship, little small statues that were uh, prayed to and burned incense to with the hope of a good harvest or the healing of our animals or the birth of our children, those kind of things, was all throughout that land of Ur, and God called specifically to Abram out of that kind of life, out of that kind of world, into a life defined by the one who called him. He says very specifically in, uh, in this that uh, the Lord, Yahweh, calls to Abram and tells him to leave the country of his family, of his relatives, of his father. This, in this time of the world, was incredibly dangerous to do. Uh, you didn't leave your father's house because of the protection that was associated with that. And yet, he is called to leave that place and God begins to make some incredible promises to him. Uh, he says that he'll make him a great nation, that he'll bless him, that his name will be known, that he'll be great, uh, that he will be blessed, and anybody who curses him that comes against him, they will be cursed. And then he makes what probably to Abram didn't make a ton of sense, but to us is incredibly profound. He makes this final statement and he says that in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Now this was a profound statement to Abram because at this point in time uh, it says that Abram was 75 years old. 
when God calls him into obedience out of his father's household to wander the wilderness. And the reason this was really profound is that Abram had no children. And it's kind of hard to become a great nation when you ain't got no kids. And from Abram, specifically, all families of the earth would be blessed. How many of you have ever had anybody make big promises to you that they didn't keep? I think that's a part of human living in a broken and sinful world, right? People make promises, employers, spouses, friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, make huge promises that then don't get fulfilled. And it's this heartache, right? It's this deep sense of trust being ripped apart. There's this expectation that we have as we walk through life that we ought to be able to trust people. And the more that that happens to you, the harder it becomes to walk in trust. The harder it becomes to live that kind of way. And Abram has this experience of walking with God. And from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 15, he knows God has told him something specific. He knows God has made huge promises to him. And yet, he's experienced war. He's experienced uh, the fear of death. He's experienced wandering. He's experienced all of these things that feel and look counter to exactly what God says. And it is in this that we see in Genesis chapter 15, Abram's natural response of a doubting of trust as he's walking in obedience. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram and in a vision he said, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Protection, safety, security. I am your defense. And then he says again, your reward shall be very great. And Abram has this natural response where he's going, listen, I hear you. I hear you. Oh, Lord God, but what will you give me since everything that you've promised me hinges upon the ability for me to have a child? What will you give me since I am childless? And Everything that I own ultimately will go to somebody by default in my house when I die. God gives Abram three huge promises. The first promise was the promise of prosperity to himself. A trueness of who God intended Abram to be. The second was a promise to the nation born of Abram. And the third promise was the promise to all nations. The Lord said to him, This man that you have said, he won't be your heir, but one that will come forth from your own body. And then God led him outside, and Abram looks to the heavens, and he sees the stars. And he says, count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. You ever stood in the middle of a a cold night uh, where there's no light pollution? And the longer you stare at the sky, it's just so crazy. The longer you stare at it, the more you can see. 
And you just keep looking and more and more and more appear. So one of my favorite things to do, it's very rare that I'm just cruising around when it's dark outside with binoculars, but it always happens in moose season uh, that I have binoculars, I'm outside, it's dark, and I'm way away from civilization. And my favorite thing to do is just pick a spot in the sky where there is no stars, take my binoculars, hold them up to that dark spot in the sky and see more stars in the viewing area than I can see with my natural eyes in the entire sky. It just, it's, it's mind-boggling to think of this. It's so much bigger than ourselves. And God makes this incredible promise to Abram that He says, you, you yourself, you will be blessed. And when we think of oftentimes this promise of, a, of an heir, of a child of Abraham, we immediately want to jump to the reality of the nation of Israel and the Hebrew people and all of the story and the, the kingdom of Israel and everything that goes on there. But this promise, though it leads to all of those things, rested squarely on God's love for Abram himself. Because there was a sense in which Abram did not feel like he was accomplishing what he intended to be, what he hoped to be, what he longed to be. He wanted to be a father. And God makes a promise to him that that's going to be true. And of course, in that promise, God makes it to Abram, but there's a reality of this. Abram's been doing the thing that you got to do to make sure a baby happens, and nothing's been happening. So there's a promise that God has made that Abram believes I can't fulfill that promise. Like This promise that you've made me involves me. You ever get volunteered for something that all of a sudden you're realizing like, I don't know if I can do this, right? I think that was like every group project I was ever in in college, right? You know, I don't know if I can do this, right? And you just feel overwhelmed in the sense of this. And God's promise to Abram was, He says, I know you. I know my purposes for you. Don't be afraid. I'm your protection and your, your reward will be great. So there's this sense that the promise that God made was for Abraham, was for himself, was to fulfill something in Abram himself that he could not fulfill himself. He also says that the promise was for a nation. That the descendants would be there. And he, later on he describes, he says, know this for certain, your descendants will be strangers in a land. Uh, and, and he's pointing forward to the Egyptian captivity and all that's there. But they will come and they will possess this land. They will be great. Uh, they will be uh, powerful in this earth. They will have possessions. And then of course, the third we looked in, verse, in uh, chapter 12 of him saying that through you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, will be blessed. Three huge promises that God makes to Abram. But all of those promises hinge on Abram's ability to fulfill that promise. Do you feel the weight of that? He's like, that God, this is all great, but how do I know I can do this? Because everything you've just described involves me. 
All of us have hopes and dreams for our life. We have hopes and dreams for our kids. We have hopes and dreams for our careers. We have hopes and dreams for our retirement. And the moment that we actually get panicky usually is not looking at other people's responses. It usually, we get panicky when we look in at ourselves and we realize like, oh wait, I've got to do something in this, right? This is the conversation I have with every graduating senior. I'll tell them, you know what, up until this point, other people have been making huge decisions for your life and making things happen. But growing up is only scary if you expect somebody else to do it for you. When you realize it's going to be you, and that's okay, it becomes a lot less daunting. Abram isn't feeling that at this moment. After the scars of the sky, he does believe God. This is verse 6, this profound statement, redemption statement, if you will. Then he believed the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And God again says to him in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you to possess it. And here's Abram's statement. This is the truth of where his heart was in the moment. He says, O Lord God, how will I know that I will possess it? Now what did God say? I will give it to you. That was God's statement. But Abram's wrestling was, how will I possess it? I know I have a role in this. And here's where we get to this, why this is such a significant moment in redemptive history. This really, really strange story. God basically says, get a bunch of animals. A cow, and a female goat, a male goat, and some birds. Cut them in half and lay the halves opposite each other. And we're reading this going like, what? Because <laughs> he said, how will I know? How will I know that, this, that I'm going to possess this? In a sense, how will I know that you're going to do what you're saying that I'm gonna, you're going to do? And then I'm really concerned because I'm, I'm involved in this. I've got to do something in this. And he tells him to take the things, he cuts them in half, In verse 11, it says the birds of prey came down and Abram goes and he drives them away. He tries to take some response, but he he doesn't do anything with them other than lay them down. But then when the sun was going down, there was a deep sleep that fell upon Abram. And in the midst of that sleep, there was terror and great darkness fell upon him. Oftentimes, I think, within Protestant and evangelical circles, we have kind of a rainbow cloud fluffy vision of encounters with God, right? We get the warm gushies in our stomach in the midst of the worship service and we feel God's love and we have those kind of things. More often than not though in Scripture, a true encounter with God comes with the sense of just... The Bible oftentimes calls it awe, uh, which is not warm gushies. It's fear. It's heaviness. It's this sense of He is so much bigger, so much holier, so much more than me. And this is what weighs down upon Abram in that moment. And this, remember, is a God's response to Abraham saying, how will I know that I will possess it? And God says, know for 
certain. Know this without wavering. That your descendants, not yet born, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and they'll be enslaved. And on and on he goes with all of that. And you yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then in verse 7, the story just gets a little weirder. It came about when the sun had set that there was a very dark that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and on and on he goes. Now, we again, in our context, we just read over that and we go, well, that's, I mean, the Bible's got a bunch of really strange stories and we just move on from that. But we don't realize the significance of what he was doing. Did you know that there's a significant amount of Scripture uh, that is relaying to us the reality of the world as it was uh, and not necessarily like prescribing how things always ought to be. There, there, it is one of the challenges of reading Scripture of determining whether or not this is the, what we are reading is descriptive, what was happening, or prescriptive, what we ought to do, right? So if we were taking this passage to be prescriptive, if we want an encounter with God, we should get animals, cut them in half, and stand there until nightfall. That would be prescriptive in this. But this is describing something for us. And what it is describing for us is God using the world in which Abram lived to communicate the depth of God's promise to Abram. Abram did... Uh, or what uh, um, what God asked Abram to do was to enter into what was known as a blood covenant or the action of cutting covenant. In the ancient world, this was a very common way of entering into. The best way we can describe it is a contract, but it was deeper than that. It had much more layers to it and much more symbolism to it. And this was something that kings would enter into each other, with each other, neighbors would enter into each other, uh, uh, um, and there's all kind of ceremony that's involved in it. And we know this because all that God tells him to do is he says, remember at the beginning, he says, I am your shield, your very great reward. He offers to him the terms of this agreement. And when Abram was wrestling with this, saying, wait a second, agreements go two ways, right? Every contract has two parties. You don't make a contract just by yourself. Contracts have two parties. And basically saying, I'll do this, you do this, and here's what happens if we don't fulfill this contract, right? We all know how that goes. God is entering into this, extending to him the, uh, the terms of the contract, what it looks like, what he is promising to him. And Abram goes... How will I know that this is going to happen? And all God says is, bring these animals to me, and it's full stop. And then Abram starts doing all this action. He takes the animals, he cuts them in half, he lays them opposite of each other, and he sits and he waits. And everything that he's doing is literal contract work of if you ever closed on a house or sign, you know, anything you do, there's a way in which you have to do it so that it is to be legally binding. In the ancient world, when individuals would 
cut covenants with each other. Uh, depending on which tribal group, there were all kind of different symbols. Sometimes they would exchange cloaks as a component of it. It was your cloak represented you yourself, and you would exchange that, looking basically saying, "Look, if you know if Martin and I we trade coats, and if you look at Chris and you see Chris wearing Martin's coat, you would know that Martin is on Chris's side. They are. You're not just talking to Chris; you're talking to Chris and Martin in the relationship of that." Uh, they would eat meals together. They would plant signet trees. Uh, sometimes they would, um, uh, if when you were a kid, anybody have a blood brother when you're on, you know, skins your knee on the on the playground and you rub that. Very dangerous. Don't don't do that. It's a bad thing, right? But that same kind of idea was, you know, in all the movies where they slash their hand and I, you know, I pledge to serve Sauron, right? Those kind of things. Those were literal things that they would do and they would leave a scar where they would show, no, I'm not standing again by myself. I am actually more than what you see right here. Abram knew that God was offering this kind of a covenant with him. A blood covenant, a cut covenant. And we see the imagery of this all throughout the rest of this, that even circumcision itself was a scar showing that they had entered into this agreement with God and could show that mark on it. Abram actually takes on part of the name of God. He goes from being Abram to being Abraham, adding in the, uh, 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 the center part of the name of God into his own name. It's the same picture of the, the, the only thing that we have in present day terms that it looks anything like the ancient type of cutting covenant is actually marriage, where the woman takes the name of a man and it is, you make the statement of till death do us part. And this covenant, this cutting of covenant was visceral in the sense that they would take an animal, sometimes one, sometimes multiple, depending on who it was that was entering into the agreement, and they would cut it in half. And the ceremony was they would stand back to back in the middle of the in the middle of the animals and they would walk apart from each other into a figure eight and they would uh, conclude by seeing standing in front of each other seeing each other face to face and ultimately we're saying I enter into this covenant and if I break it if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant may this be what happens to me I mean, it's a pretty visual reality. And again, remember, this is the ancient world where they did that kind of thing, right? Like, it's, that's a pretty heavy way of agreement. And God tells Abram, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you in this way, in a way that you're actually familiar with, that you've seen, that you know what it looks like. And so Abram goes and he takes the animals and he cuts them in half and he begins to wait because a contract is two parties entering into that contract. And he waits and he waits and while he's waiting, the birds come down and they're trying to mess the whole thing up and he shoes them off. And then nighttime comes. And in the midst of all of that, his work, his effort, I'm making sure, you know, am I in this? He's already even said, Abram believed God. He agreed with what God said, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul says, shows us that when he asked the question, how was Abram saved? The answer is the same as us. Abram was not saved by obedience to the law, because guess what? The law had not come. Abram was saved by faith. 
And Abram had done this, but in the midst of this, it's still, what do I do? How do I, how do I know I will possess this? And darkness falls in terror on him, and God reveals Himself to him, and He says, know this for certain. You're going to have descendants, and they're going to take the land, and they will have possession of it. And then God does something profound. It says in verse 17 again, When it came about, when the sun had set, and it was very dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. The sense of the burning presence of God. And it passed between the pieces. And Moses did not. Not Moses. Abram did not. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram, saying, To your descendants, right? Your descendants, kind of your responsibility, right? They can't be your descendants unless they come from you. Your, to your descendants, I have given this land. The profound nature of what it was that God did on that day was God entered into covenant with Abram, but God walked both, both positions of the contract. The incredible promise of God was this. I will fulfill my part of this agreement. And then check this. I will fulfill your part of this agreement. And if it be not so, may this be what happens to me. Do you see this unbelievable promise that God gives? God calls Abram to obedience. And as he's walking along and trying to live in obedience and trying to be all these things, he may be feeling like, man, I feel like God's just trying to offer me a penny for my obedience. When really what God is saying is, no, not only am I offering you not just something, uh, nothing, I'm offering you everything and I will assure that you will make it through. The promise of God's redemption has always been this, that we, as proved in our father Adam, were never enough. Not once. There's a lot of religion that tells us if you just do these things, you'll be better. You'll be good. Here's six steps to a better you. Here's five principles to your own righteousness. And friends, the gospel is not in any of those. Because ultimately, our salvation is never a work that we are to earn. Because here's the dynamic of that illustration from the beginning. If you wash the dishes and you get the penny, that penny is the payment for your labor. And that one you go like, well, that's not worth nothing. But if I went up to every dollar that's ever been minted, which by the way is 80% of them in the last two years, that's nuts. And we wonder why inflation's happening. But anyways, uh, if, I, if I offer you every dollar that's ever been minted for you to wash the dishes once, it's still a payment for it. But if I ask you 
to wash the dishes because it brings exceeding joy to the one who loves you most. It ceases to be payment and it becomes gratitude. Our obedience has never, ever, ever in the history of God's redemptive work, our obedience has never been the thing that produces the gift of God. Abram believed God. He believed what he said he was going to do. He would accomplish it on his behalf and God proved it. And the profound nature of this, when we maybe wrestle with our own salvation, we wrestle with, you know, isn't it, am I a good enough Christian? Have I, did I pray the right kind of prayer? Have I confessed enough sins? Have I done those kind of things? Then we're thinking in terms of pennies and not thinking of terms of the one who loves us perfectly. Jesus Christ, when He came to this earth and lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved did not look at us and say, now do these things so that I can love you. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for you. And the new covenant tied us in with that same old one. It was still the same question of, will we believe God? And our wrestling is the same as Abram's. We're saying, God, I know what You've said in Your Word. I've heard all of the sermons. I've listened to all of the conferences. I've read the books. I know those things, but how will I know? And God didn't give us a bigger list of things to follow. He sent His one and only Son. And the remarkable thing about the covenant that Jesus cut for us was that it was a covenant that God entered into with Himself. But this time, instead of bulls and goats and pigeons, it was Christ Himself. It was His body. It was His righteousness. It was His goodness. It was His innocence that fulfilled the contract of love and forgiveness. Because one of the profound things about this, and it's the reason why God had to do this, had to take both sides of it, is it's not very long after this that Abram's a knucklehead again. He screws up again. He doesn't, he doesn't keep his faith resting wholly, completely, just living in righteousness, this moral and upright thing. It's not very long after that, uh, almost immediately after it, in fact, that Abram goes... Uh, God's still taking a long time. Where's, uh, where's Hagar? <laughs> right? Do you think God knew that that was going to happen? Hint, yes. Okay, if you believe what, God, what the Bible says about who God is, God knew all of that. And that's why God said, all right, knucklehead, I'll, I will agree to fulfill your part of the agreement. I will hold you fast. How many of you have sinned after the day you came to faith in Jesus? Kind of like this, right? Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we find out just how deep ingrained sin is in our lives. And the more and more and more we find out just how precious Jesus is to us. That God's story of redemption and our story as it lays in there is the same story that's happened with every person who by faith has trusted in God's goodness, trusted in God's faithfulness, trusted in God's ability to take what we have jacked up with our own decisions, with our bad uh, actions, with our impaired judgment, and turn them for our good. Are there consequences that we have to deal with? Of course there are. Is there pain that we have to feel as a result of the foolishness that we do after we have by faith trusted in Jesus? Of course there is. But here's the point that we need to understand from the story of Abram as it goes all the way down to Jesus. Is that once we enter into that covenant relationship with Him by faith, we are trusting in Him. And this is what's profound. Do you know the only person that can break covenant is one who made it? And if God has made covenant with Himself, the only way that God could break it is if God is a liar. When we rest by faith in Him, we are resting in a rock that does not move and cannot be broken. God looks at us the same as He looks at Abram and He says to them, Fear not. I am your shield. And your reward shall be very great. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.